Thank you, Brother Adrian, and brethren, good morning, or good afternoon, rather. It's a pleasure indeed to be here in Burlington today. It's been a while, but I see you're holding the fourth and doing the will of God. In fact, I'm very much impressed with all that this congregation is doing um, for the spreading of the gospel, the Bible studies, you know, all the outreach activities. Yeah, it's very much in line with what I want to talk about today, divine empowerment. Divine empowerment uh, is another word for grace. God gives grace. It's not a New Testament phenomenon. Grace has always been ever since God existed. For the most part, individuals would look at grace and attach that meaning of unmerited favor for the most part. In other words, we don't deserve whatever we get, and so that's God's grace. That is correct. And for others, grace is just what God gives, and there's no obligation to keep his commandments or do anything because we're saved by grace. By using the title Divine Empowerment, I want to suggest that grace is that gift from God. It's a holy influence that brings individuals to Christ in the first place. Helps to maintain that relationship with God. And empower that one to carry out the Great Commission. I start with Romans 1 and verse 5. Paul says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship, For obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name's sake. So Paul received grace and apostleship from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he received both grace and apostleship is for the obedience to the faith among all nations. In terms of the definition of grace, the Bible usage, you know, I met a guy some years ago, uh, he wasn't of the Sabbath-keeping community, 
And he says his salvation is all about grace. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, you know, being, being, being graceful, being, being gracious. Everything is just about being very nice, um, delightful, sweet, charming, loving, graceful in his speech and in his walk and everything. And that's how he perceived his Christian walk. It's all about that kind of view of grace. Grace, for sure, has to do with goodwill, loving kindness and favor. And I want to think that when we speak of the grace of God, we want to see him as the person in charge. And it is his goodwill, it is his kindness, and it is his loving favor that is taking us through our life's journey. Now Paul, I think, writes about the grace of God more than any other writer in the Bible. He dwells on God's grace. Let's go to verse 1 of, of the same chapter, Romans 1.1. 1, 1, and we'll see what Paul has to say about the grace of God. It's a build-up to that statement where he said that he was called um, by grace. He was given grace and apostleship. So in verse 1, Paul is saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, O Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to, this, to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The first point I want to highlight from Paul's statement here is that he identified himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now why is that important? Why call himself a servant? Who wants to be called servants? I would think for the most part everyone wants to be the master, the person in charge. And he being an apostle actually have the authority he should he could say he's a, he's a master. But he chose to use the word servant, that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? It means something when it comes to the meaning of the grace of God towards him. Let's look quickly at Deuteronomy 19. And we're going to read from verse 12 to 15. It's a story about what it means to be a servant, but a special type of ser servant. Deuteronomy 
15, 12 says, And if thy brother, an Hebrew man, or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee, and serve thee six years, then the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou ascendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress. Of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. And the Lord thy God redeemed thee, therefore I commanded thee this thing this day. And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee, and thine house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl, and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy servant forever, and also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. So here's a scenario where one who was enslaved, and for the most part, people don't volunteer to be slaves. Some condition usually um, cause it, whether they, they, they have no money, uh, whether they are they're captors from, from a war or something. But a situation arises and they had to be sold in slavery. But there are cases where the place of service is so good and meaningful that these slaves, after serving for six years, they can choose to remain slaves. And there are some who took that choice to be a bond man or a bond woman, a slave for the rest of his life because that's what the vow asks for. Once that all is put through the air, that servant will have to remain in that house for the rest of his or her life. Now that's a serious vow to take. The vow to be a slave. But this form of slavery it is special because it is willingness. This is voluntary. You're not asking me. You're not oppressing me. You are, in fact, uh, being blessed by my service because I want to. This is the way I think Paul wants to approach his servanthood. He's not serving the Lord because God is forcing him. And none of us should have that attitude. God is the boss. He has resources 
above and beyond all of us. But if we find that in his service he's a good Lord, a good master, we have no problem with that all going through our ears. We'll be servants for life. Because in his presence, David says, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures for and evermore. Why should we want to leave God's holy presence? We can be his servants. So we volunteer, he volunteered to be uh, a bondman for, for, for Jesus Christ, a willing servant. Now Paul also said that by grace, he was called to be an apostle. He received apostleship and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle, we know, is a delegate, a delegate, especially an ambassador of the gospel, officially commissioned of Christ with miraculous power most of the time. One that is sent. So Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, takes on this rule of apostleship or was given it by the Lord Jesus Christ. That in itself is abundant grace. Because here to be appointed to such an office, many would crave that position. But it's one of those that is selected by the master and given to whom he wishes. And so Paul was very humbled. I can imagine when he considered that he was given the apostleship by God. We know Paul's story. He was no saint at the beginning. Well, according to the law, he said he was, he was blameless. But as far as Christ is concerned, he was a persecutor of the church. The very church which he was trying to destroy to nothing, taking the people, throwing them into prisons, and he was on his way to Damascus to, to, to create more havoc of the body. God chose him to be the ambassador. The grace of God must have overwhelmed him. He must have felt to be the most unworthy person for such an office. But we're going to see how he handles the, the call and how the grace of God had worked in his life. Now in Philippians 3.7, and this is the change Paul, no longer Saul, this is a change man speaking. Philippians 3, 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted but lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I counted all these but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. 
Here's a man who was brought up at, at, at the feet of Gamaliel, a lawyer. His education could offer opportunities to go places. But finding Christ and choosing to be God's servant, he gave it up all. He said he counted all things but loss for Christ. I love the fact that he realized that there is excellency in the knowledge of Christ. But his real goal was to be found in him, according to verse 9. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So Paul wanted to get to that place where he really know his master. And he wanted to be found in him and to be made conformable unto his death. This is a place that we all should strive for. This is identifying ourselves totally with our calling and with our cause. This is a great ambition. And he continued, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In order to gain Christ, Paul forsook friends. He forsook his country to some extent. And the future, of course, that his education opened up for him. He wanted to take a hold of salvation. So we want to see now, how did the grace of God work in Paul's life? And the way it works in Paul's life, let's draw a lesson from that to see how the grace of God should work in our own life. If we turn to Galatians 1.15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Oh, let's hold it there. What did Paul say? When it pleased God, who separated him from his mother's womb, called him by his grace. So Paul was actually called by the grace of God. <coughs> How about our calling today? Do we realize that it is the grace of God by which we have been called? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.1 Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and sustenance our brother. 
So it was called by the grace of God and through the will of God. I use that because there is something about grace and will that we need to connect. If we look back at the servant, one thing that the servant had to yield to be the master's servant is his will. You can't be a servant and have your own will. You have to give that up. And I see where Paul yield everything. So in other words, he gave up his own will so that he can be God's in total. Now this is an important point if we are to really have God's grace to the to a greater measure. We all have some God's grace to some extent, but we can get more. It is his will that matters. And the more we are aligned with his will, the more of his grace we have. So he was called by God's, God's grace. We have to emphasize the calling. The world is confused about the plan of salvation that God has. There are some who goes to the extent to say that salvation has been purchased and is given to all the world and there's no need for anyone to do anything. Just believe and you will be saved. There are others who believe that God made, in, in, when he made man, some people were made for heaven, as they would say, and others for hell. And nothing can change that. I saw a movie recently where a pastor was in serious conflict because people whom he loved were going to hell according to his own belief system. And he could not reconcile how a merciful God could do such a thing. How could a God of love and mercy put someone and have them burning in eternal fire for millions of years? And when he questioned his fellow bishops about the theory, he asked, if it was you, would you do that? Of course, they try to shy away from the question. You have someone who you love. Would you burn them forever and ever? The point he was making is that, look, if you wouldn't do it as a man, how do you expect God to do it? Are, are you, are, is, is man more merciful than God? The Bible tells us that God is more merciful. He he is more merciful. So that whole teaching of a hell, the, the, the everlasting hellfire that people are burned with need to be addressed properly in this world today because there are many people who are confused and in the dark because they think that you live for 70 years or 80 or 90 years with some sin and 
you will suffer eternally. That's not according to scriptures. Now, because God has a plan in place where he call some people by opening their minds to the truth and he have a plan in place that others will be called in time. So it doesn't mean that the whole world is condemned. God has a plan. And it's our responsibility to open up that plan of God to the world because there's much confusion out there. I'm going to run through some verses that uh, will highlight the work of grace. And I'm starting with, um, in Paul's life especially, and let's start with justification, Romans 3.24. Paul says that he was being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification. Is it necessary? I think it is. How did we get justification? It is by the grace of God. That's what Paul, that's what Paul says. Sometimes we underestimate the value of justification because most of us are born free and have little association with the, the world of darkness and crime and all of that. But for a person who commits a crime and his name is on that list of persons who need a pardon in order to have their civil liberties restored, then justification to that one means a lot. It is a legal term. And until a pardon is given for that crime, that person cannot travel sometimes. They, they, they can't go to school. There's so much limitations to one who is in need of pardon. For us, before we came to Christ, we were in the prison of Satan's camp. Taking the step to come to Christ, we have been made free because we have repented. But even that godly sorrow for our sins and repentance did not give us the pardon. It is God's grace that erases all the sins that we have and give us a new start.
the grace of God justifies us. In Romans 5.22, it says, By whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I like the fact that it says that we have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand. So after being justified, brethren, we are standing in a place that is free and powerful. We are standing in God's grace. I see myself surrounded by his love, his goodwill, his kindness, and everything that is propelling us onward. We're standing in his grace. If there are any dull moments, we're still standing in his grace. It will lift us up and get us over the trials or whatever we're going through. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offering might abound. But where sin abound, grace did much more abound. Now look at that. Where sin abound, grace did much more abound. It takes the grace of God to to cover the sins. And if you're in a city where all around is unrighteousness and you know people are doing the, the, the worst of sins, those who stand for righteousness amidst all of that sin, we have to give thanks to the Lord for anyone who can rise above the, the culture, who can rise above the atmosphere to stand in his grace. The more or the greater the sin is, the more mercy is needed to put it aside. And so, where sin abound, grace must more abound because God is not running away. He's not turning his back to anyone who calls upon him and he's willing, of course, to eradicate sin out of any and every life. Grace 5 verse 21 says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Yes, so where sin abound, grace much more abound. But grace has the ability through righteousness to give eternal life. Paul says in Romans 6.14 For sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. He's speaking to the brethren. 
the brethren of the church of God. And he's telling them that they're not under the law, but under grace. It is important that we understand exactly what it means to be under grace and not under the law. Because in fact, we are under grace. Let's look at John 1, 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18 says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him he shall hearten. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord, thy God in Horeb in that day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise thee up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. I read those verses to highlight the importance of the con contrast between Moses and Jesus. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. So from the inception of the covenant, it was promised that a prophet would come like Moses. And the Lord instructed the people that they should hear him. Now, look at Acts 3.22. For Moses truly said unto the brethren, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatever he shall say unto you. Which prophets were that? Jesus Christ. So the New Testament affirms that Jesus Christ is that prophet like unto Moses. Now there have been many prophets since Moses. Between Moses and Jesus Christ. We have the great Elijah. Elisha. Daniel. Maybe Daniel is not even so much called a prophet. But so many great prophets. But none was like unto Moses. Because Moses had this special relationship with God. And he told it to Miriam. When she thought that she too was a prophetess. And he said look I speak to Moses face to face. But to the rest he speaks with God speaking. We know that Jesus Christ was in the very presence of the Father. And there was also face to face. He said, whatever he does was the will of his Father. Whatever Jesus says should be hearkened to. Because he was that prophet like unto Moses. Now does that me mean that whatever Moses did was to be thrown out the window, it was no good? 
Absolutely not. Living under grace does not mean that the law, which the, the God's righteous law, is done away with. And Jesus himself teaches that. Matthew 5, 17. This is the person that we are to be listening to. And he says, think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. For all the prophets on the law prophesied until John. Matthew 11.13 All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So there was a conclusion of the reign of the law with John. John the Baptist was the one who introduced Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke 16.17 the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Luke sixteen seventeen, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one title of the law to fail. This could appear contradictory, but there is actually no contradiction. And I'll quickly refer you to the story of that woman who was caught in adultery to illustrate the difference with the period of the, the law and the period of grace. So we know this woman was brought to Jesus taken in adultery. And they would quote Moses. Mo Moses say that she should be stoned. What do you say? Hear him. What did Jesus say? Okay, let him that has the let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And they walked away one after the other. And he looked around when he finished writing on the ground and asked, Woman, where are thine accusers? And told her, Go away and sin no more. So what I find from that story and from what the Bible is saying about the reign of the law and the reign of grace is that Christ introduced a period wherein whenever one sins, that is, transgress the law, that immediate death penalty was no longer in force. So under Moses, a person caught in adultery or most of the or any of the Ten Commandments if they if, if, if they broke them there was the penalty of death immediate punishment stoned to death but Christ introduced this delayed judgment people can now come to Christ when they sin and actually ask forgiveness and the Bible teaches that he is just. He will remove the sins. 
as far as the east is from the west. The period of grace reigns because God is, is giving mankind time and time and time again to make right their wrongs. Where sin abound, grace much more abound. Isn't God truly gracious? This is the period we are, we are living in, brethren. So the stoning of people who sin was under the law of Moses and, 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 and those things. But the law that says thou shalt not, that law is still in place. The Ten Commandments does not give the consequences. It points out sin. So to break the Sabbath, to dishonor your parents, to serve another God, any of those commandments you, you, you break, you commit a sin. Now, how is it dealt with? Under the old covenant is, is different than under the new covenant. And so Paul is saying to the brethren that we are not under law, but under grace. And to strengthen that, Romans 8, 3 and 4, Paul, in highlighting that both the law and grace had the same intention, that is to keep us from sin. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit I like this idea that the law that period it was beneficial to a point People who sin knew the judgment of God instantly. Everyone around. Everyone around. This woman commit adultery. Cast her out. This man steal. He shall be done. And fear was upon the nations. Yet with all of that, Israel as a whole failed. They worship other gods. They still sin. The law was weak in the flesh. But under the period of grace, God sent his son. His own son in the likeness of flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It is the grace of God that helps us, brethren, to overcome sin. It is the grace of God that helps us to walk in integrity. It is not fear that is driving us. Because if it was just fear, we would be as lousy as Israel. But the grace of God gives us that additional empowerment that we can go through constant self-examination. We can confess our sins 
and we can live a holy life empowered by the grace and the spirit of our Lord and Savior. Isn't that wonderful? Romans 12.3 For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So Paul is saying here that he himself has been given grace. The grace given unto him. And he's repeating it. But look at verse 6, Romans 12, 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, with a prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. So not only was Paul received, did Paul receive grace, but all of us. You're prophesying. You're praying, you're preaching, you're giving all the gifts that you use for the glory of God is given by the grace of God. It is the grace of God that is propelling you to do what you do for him. And all of us have that grace. So in the body of Christ, really, there's no one that is without a talent. There is no one that has no place to serve because God has given his grace to everyone. There's something that you can do for the Lord by his grace and because of his grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I abounded more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. How do you see yourself? And I think I, I forgot to welcome the live listeners. It's not too late. Hello. <laughs> the question is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Consider your life right now. Do you consider yourself blessed? Do you consider yourself gifted? Do you consider yourself endowed by God's goodness and mercy and all these wonderful things? Whatever you are, however you see yourself, it is the grace of God that makes you and I, who we are. 
It means a lot. When you look at your life, you look at your achievements, you, 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 you look at your fortunes, even if you don't think it's all that great, but wherever you are, by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. I'm pretty grateful. I'm very grateful for what God has done for me. Especially the fact that he has called me into his salvation. It is by the grace of God that I stand. The grace of God, when it's in you, it is perceptible. Galatians 2.9 And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me Barnabas, to me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Now what did they see in Paul? These are apostles, James, Cephas, and John. They, saw, they perceived the grace of God was given to Paul. I try to think about this, but I think we all know. Someone walks in the room, open his or her mouth, and immediately you know there is something about this person. This person has a talent. This person has a, a, an ambition. This person is driven by something to do something great. I think that's what they, they, they perceive. When Paul was just a no-nonsense man, he knew what he was about. What he stood for, it was clear to the world. And Paul attributed that to the grace of God. It was perceptible. They could see that in him. When we have the grace of God in us, it's, it can't be hidden. The passion that you have to do what you want to do is driven by God's grace. You know, in, in the Proverbs, it is said that a man's talent will make way for him and bring him before kings. That's how it works. And so you find that people in leadership position, in fact, starting with the Almighty himself, he will, he gives grace and he recognizes those who respond to his grace positively and give them even more grace. So the more you do, you may find that you get more to do because you're a good worker. You know that type of thing. This person is always doing the right thing, always abiding by the, 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 the rules and regulations, and he's just a good person. You want to give that person more resources. You want to give them more perks. You want to give them more grace. And that's what it is like to work with the will of the Father. Then Paul, as he's winding down with his comments on grace, 
He says here that in Galatians um, 2 and verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for it is righteousness. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He makes that statement because of those who were insisting that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And he made it plain that, look, this is not necessary. And I am not going to frustrate the grace of God. In our own walk today as believers, I think we need to take that same cue from Paul. When God makes, makes his will clear to us, let's not, let's not fight it. Let's not do just what we think, like the Jews were doing, holding on to Moses when that period was passed. We have to be in tune with what God is doing today. The master is here. We are his servants, and we do his will. So he does not frustrate the grace of God. When, is, when all is said and done, Ephesians 2.5 Even when we were dead in sins hath quickness together with Christ. So he's basically looking at the big outcome of living a life empowered by grace. Divine empowerment. What is the whole aim of our meetings, of our daily walk, or daily prayer, or Bible studies, or sermons? What is it all about? We're all striving for salvation. We just want to get into the kingdom of God and stay there. And Paul is saying, by grace ye are saved. Our salvation is by grace. While we secure our own salvation, and I know the importance of the future for any thinking person. You don't just want to know that today you are here and all is well. You want to know that tomorrow is also good. The grace of God prevails to bring salvation. Paul identify his ministry that God hath empowered him to bring the good news of salvation to the world. Brethren, as we stand in the grace of God, before God, 
Let us pray not only for our salvation today, but for the salvation of all those who God is calling in our time. Those who God wants us to reach. And for us to be prepared by his power and his will to be at a place that it is safe for them to be at. The grace of God will ensure that we have that safe place. We must consider those whom we love and we must extend our knowledge of God's grace to them in a very active way. Let them have the assurance of a future that is not ebbed in uncertainty but a future that is decorated with the grace of God. A kingdom that is awaiting those who are willing to serve the true and living God. Virgin, it was a pleasure being here. It was great sharing. And I trust that we all will enjoy the grace of God as we go forward. Just like to say a word of prayer. As we close this sermon, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for calling us into your grace. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your spirit, dear Father. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for justification, sanctification, and we look forward, dear Father, to be glorified in you. We pray today, as we bring this service to a close, that you will touch each and every one, strengthen us all with your grace, and especially those, dear Father, who have not made that full commitment to be your servant, may that person willingly do so now. We thank you for everything. We lift up your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.